Welcome to BizBytes, brought to you by Com Together, helping businesses like yours build their brand through telling amazing stories to engage and grow audiences on multiple platforms. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of BizBytes. And uh, I have a, an interesting guest with me here today that uh, I'm going to get him to introduce himself, but we we're having a bit of a laugh before we started the program because uh, Chris... Um, uh, meant to fill in a form to give me some information. And I thought it was really an intriguing answer that he'd given to a question that I'd asked and thought it was kind of a dot, dot, dot. And it turns out, no, it was just a, uh, didn't quite get to finish the answer and accidentally hit send. But uh, Chris, great to have you as part of the program. And as I do with uh, all of my guests, I ask you to formally introduce yourself and what you do. Hi, I'm Chris Pop. I specialise in uh, organisations that have got hybrid workplaces and help them deal with this whole new world of flex work. Uh, how do you manage people that you can't see? Um, how do you manage without micromanaging? How do you keep people enthused and excited? Uh, and a part of that is getting people to balance performance and well-being. How do I uh, both help my team to perform, but look after the well-being at the same time? And I guess in that, a little bit about being authentic, because I think that's part of well-being. So, yes, I did uh, muck up the form. <laughs> well, that's an authentic way to start, right? Um, we know that it was actually you doing it. it. It it's interesting though. I love the you know personally, I've been using the word authentic uh, for quite a number of years. It's become, I guess, trendier. I hate that term, but um, uh, it's been used quite a bit in recent times. But I think it's always been particularly true for me because it's about uncovering the real people and really understanding them and allowing them to have a voice what does what's authenticity mean to you in the in the mm. context of what you do you're you're much more generous than i am around authenticity you've come to it from some sort of really good uh way uh the reason i like authenticity is because it actually takes resources to not be authentic right so you got to pretend to be something you are or you aren't uh, and that takes up resources and I'm all about efficiency and productivity so I came to it from from that and it just got a bit uh, exhausting but um, it's a good topic at the moment because you might have seen all the states in Australia are dealing with something called psychosocial hazards so all the states I know Victoria's just come out New South Wales has come out and we're about to they're all, all the states are doing it so it's a national agreement where employers must ensure psychosocial safety in their workplace. Now, I don't can't remember the formal um, the formal uh, definition, but it means a workplace where it's safe for the whole person to turn up, and where they can expect to go be themselves and go about the work without being demeaned or ridiculed or being sarcastic or anything like that. So, the authentic piece means you can actually come and be who you really are, awards and all. And it's so different, isn't it? I remember, um, you know, back when I was young and starting out that the idea of anyone showing um, tattoos, body art was just a complete no-no. And, and these days, of course, it's become much more commonplace. I personally don't have any, but uh, you see it happen all the time. And I found it, I remember the kind of, the, I actually remember where that changed a little bit in the workplace. There's one person who um, uh, worked as, in a, as a supplier uh, for my for my business, still does, and this was going back a long time, bef even before Come Together was established. 
and uh, always saw him with long sleeves. Never thought anything more about it. Most people wear, you know, most men wear long sleeves uh, as a general rule to work throughout the year. So, so no big deal. Um, and it was only there was an occasion where I saw him in in short sleeves for the first time and realized that he had, you know, tattoos up his arm and, and everything, which is totally fine. But I remember thinking it, it was, I know how strategic it was for him to actually hide those in the workplace because when I first met him, I was working in a very corporate environment. And so that corporate environment, there's no way that would have been um, I, I, tolerated would be the wrong word, but it, it sort of would have been frowned upon. And embracing embracing our own individuality is such an important thing these days. Um, yeah, and not to have to be guarded about that piece of it. Look, the other the other way it might have um, started to creep in is that uh, I used to I did my thesis on innovation. I interviewed a bunch of venture capitalists about um, how do they choose good uh, good ventures. Uh, and the answer, the short answer is very badly. But um, just to cut, to cut a long story short, so one of the things it turns out, I then go into these organisations and uh, they wanted to become more innovative. And I, and I used to run these um, these surveys, right, and the surveys would ask the lower levels and the, the leaders, what's the main barrier to innovation? And the, the, the line staff would always say, my boss doesn't listen. And the leaders would always say, uh, my line staff don't have any good ideas. But how does it come <laughs> back into this is, uh, you know, like, mm, I can see what the problem is. How it comes back into this is um, that the um, part of being innovative is you want to be able to try experiments out and they, they'll go wrong. In fact, most yes. of the time they go wrong and sometimes they'll succeed. And if it's not okay to do that, then you're not going to get much innovation. And so you can see as organizations have tried to compete more they have wanted to be more more innovative and a part of being more innovative is letting people turn up and do and say uh you know uh, things that may not be i was going to say stupid things but sometimes they can seem like oh, that's a that's a strange way to do that but give it a try so i think that's probably some of the background to uh some of the uh, organizational reasons why people may want to um you know allow more authenticity but you know all the reasons i gave before it actually takes there's a great bit of research that's done some years ago, and they were looking about um, they were looking about inauthentic and authentic leaders, and they found that when a leader uh, hides something, you don't know what it is, but you feel slightly ill at ease, right? You feel slightly ill at ease. Don't know what they're hiding, and and how it happens is what they say won't be completely congruent with their body language, right? So they'll say something like everything's okay and listeners, you can't see this, that you're smiling. But what um, people will pick up unconsciously is that the corners of their eyes are a bit uh, tight. And so they then see this incongruence and they then pick that up and they feel unsafe themselves. Uh, and and so, so they feel unsafe themselves. They don't bring their whole selves to work. And you spend a bit of your time actually uh, not thinking about the work but other things. Can I, can I give you a really good example of a bit of research Please. you've done about that? Please, yes. Uh, and, and the question you, get, you ask is, uh, and you know, some people are going to get offended, does uh, does having, uh, does being poor reduce your IQ? That's the question. Oh, 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 Chris, you can't say things like that. Here's, here's an experiment that was done. They set up a, a research station at a shopping mall. And as people came in, they said, would you mind 
uh, we'd like to give you some cognitive uh, puzzles to do and you can have a crack at them. And so they gave them, I don't know, maths puzzles or other sorts of shape puzzles and things. And they before they came, they had two, two different groups. So they said to each group before they started, uh, before you start, though, imagine that on the way here, you got a fine. It is a $1,000 fine. Now, please go ahead and do these puzzles. Uh, so they went ahead and did that. Uh, and then afterwards, they got the results. And they found that people from a lower socioeconomic background did less well. well let me repeat that. If you were poor and you were told you just got a $1,000 fine, here, can you solve this problem? You couldn't solve it as well as others because a part of their brain is now worrying about the, the, the bill they've got to pay, right? So you've got a part of the brain that's doing that. So you can bring this back to insecure work uh, and all sorts of things. You can bring this back to how much a leader should share about the state of the business. Um, but you can think about the authentic piece. If I have to wear a long sleeve shirt and hide that, um, then uh, that's a bit of my brain thinking about, am I hiding this well enough? And that part of your creativity, your thinking, isn't available to do the work. And I think that's uh, at the heart of authenticity. And that's part of why it actually is really useful in a, in a business sense. Yeah, I know we we um, uh, touched on in a previous episode uh, of the podcast uh, with with another guest about how um, you know the previous practice has been basically to leave, uh, and I can't remember the exact percentage. It's something like eighty plus percent of of you at the door. That the the old idea of right when you come to work, you discard who you are normally and outside of life, and you just focus on work. But in fact, that decreases our productivity. And, and I think it's really interesting because we've all been through phases in our lives where we're distracted by something uh, that's happening in our personal life. And that, that can be good and bad things, but we've all had that uh, at, at various times. Um, you know, I know uh, last year, for example, I was selling my house. And as much as I tried to allow that or try and prevent that from interfering with what I was doing at work, because they are completely unrelated. The truth is they overlapped. And the truth is it was hugely distracting. And, um, you know, so that's a, it's a really interesting example of how those sorts of things can have an impact on you, but you can also turn that around, right? And I think it's a matter of, as you say, I love the idea of making people feel at ease in the workplace. One of the things that I've noticed, and, and my team hopefully will listen to this and back this up, is that we've done some things in our team meetings whereby, uh, you know, we've spent some time talking about things that are happening in our personal life and usually things about dogs and learning to drive as, as a couple of my team members have, have been learning to do in recent times. And I should hasten to add one one much later in life, he's he's got... Uh, He's got kids and is, uh, I think he hasn't driven for a long time and is now learning again. And so all of these things disarm a little bit and and mm. bring you back into the normalcy of saying, well, it's not just, we've not just got this fake relationship that's built on work only. Mm. There is something more to it. Yeah, yeah. These, these are the things I uh, try to talk to um, about people in the, in the workplace when I do my sessions, and it's, it, I guess in a way it's kind of normalising psychology and, and and workplaces. That thing you talked about, by the way, um, the being distracted by the house or some sort of shock. Uh, so I want to make two points about that. Uh, one was Gallup did some pretty interesting research around weekly check-ins. And, they, and they, I love formulas, right? Um, I'm not, not a smart guy. I like to for, uh, follow a formula. And the formula for the weekly check-in with your staff should be 
inquire about something about them as a person, whatever it happens to be, uh, and then see if you can help them accomplish some work. Right, but that comes first. Uh, and I remember um, I was teaching a resilience program with Victoria Police, and it was the Ethical Standards Division. So these are the police that report on police, highly unpopular, uh, and uh, so you can imagine they needed a lot of resilience. Uh, anyway, as, as I went into the program, um, and I had I don't uh, I'm Melbourne, you know, AFL down here, and I don't watch a lot of footy, but I happened to watch the Richmond game. And as I walked in, I said to this guy, oh, it was a good Richmond game on Saturday night, and it was his team. And he went from being fairly stiff, ethical standards, we're here to talk about, you know, resilience and a whole lot of serious topics. We spent this sort of five-minute conversation talking about that, and then the whole rest of the session went much more easily because we'd had this, I was just lucky that I watched that game, you know, uh, and, and the rest of the conversation just kind of flowed, built, built trust and relations. So people want to be seen as people, yeah. Relatability is such an important, uh, it, you know, element in how we manage the relationships. I know, you know, I look back on, for example, a uh, a client um, that I, you know, won several years ago now, and they had contacted me via the web. It was pretty much a cold, uh, cold contact. And, uh, you know, I did the usual thing that you might do and try and research who it is that you're going to be meeting with. And so I went on to LinkedIn and one particular person had, uh, I think the only real significant um, uh, mutual contact that we had was someone that I actually knew very well as a friend. And so I rang him up and I said, oh, how do you know such and such? And he said, oh, we worked together for like 12 years and this and that and whatever else. I said, great. I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm catching up with him. Is okay if I say hi? He said, yep, sure. So I walked in the door to this meeting, not knowing these people and said to the person, oh, I've got greetings from a, from an old work colleague of yours. I was talking to him on the weekend and mentioned that I was catching up with you. Oh, and we wrap it on like that. And I was in from that moment. Um, you know, it was uh, fortunate that they've, they've been longstanding clients. In fact, long, interestingly enough, even uh, that's transferred across long after he left that organisation mm -hmm. because he was employed there, not a not a uh, an owner um but i wanted to um before we delve into this a little bit more i what i would love to know, understand is is what got you into this in the first place because where did this begin for you when you were i guess back in university days what was the what was the dream of wanting to study and what was the journey that got you to where you are today well uh before university days which is when i was 11 or 12 i wanted to be a cat burglar or a nuclear scientist. They <laughs> well, they're closely, rela closely related. Uh, I can see that. <laughs> I think there had been some uh, crime in Europe where the claim was that the burglar had come into the bedroom of these people and taken the ring off their finger. And I just thought, wow, imagine being able to be that sneaky. Um, and of course, being a, you know, a boy back then, I, I love the idea of blowing things up. Um, nuclear power. Uh, so that was where it started. Um, look, then I... They're both power-related, aren't they? One's one's just more obvious than the other, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, Look, I worked as an ABC journalist. I was one of the first journalists into Vietnam after it uh, in 1990, after it became more liberal. Uh, then I wrote a novel... Uh, and then I was, um, it was a bunch of, did a writing course. I worked for the, uh, one of the first, the first internet directories in the world, which was called Look Smart. And it happened to be based in Burke Street in Melbourne. 
uh, and I was lucky to get a job with them, which introduced me to this whole, that was in 1997 or eight. So for the first time, I remember leaving the office one evening and looking around and all these people were talking and typing and I'm like, what are they doing? I said, are they chatting to people on the other side of the world? I'm like, that's such a ridiculous idea. Why would you do that? Um, so, so then, then, and I, uh, from that, I went on to build the first tenders website for the Victorian government. But how I got into what I do now was uh, I did my innovation thesis, and one day I was running an innovation workshop, and I was standing at the front of the room, and we were trying to come up with a new name for something, and everyone was laughing, and I thought, this is great. This is what I want to do. Now, I was uh, unlike a lot of you listeners, I was already. 40 by then, I won't say the exact year. Uh, and I just I just really liked that. And it, it could be look, could be my unmet need as a child to get more attention. But that started this whole journey into uh facilitation, which I love to run group sessions. It's probably one of my fortes. Uh and then I you know finished off working at the department and I uh was trying to start out as a facilitator. I had no idea about business, nothing much was happening. I was tutoring a bit, uh, but I had uh, I was also single. And I read this article that said that uh, people who smile or laugh more are considered more attractive. And I thought, I oh, know, I need to learn how to laugh more. And so I Google laughter, as, as I do. And at that moment, the founder of the world laughter movement, Madan Kataria, was coming to Australia like the following week. And he had this one-day workshop at Melbourne Town Hall. So I rocked up and did this workshop. I thought, this is, this is a bit of fun. This is all right. Uh, and uh, I got the training and I started a laughter club. It was a Saturday morning at 11.30. Uh, and this is while I was still sort of trying to build up the facilitation. And one day somebody rang me up and they said, um, can you run a laughter session at our Christmas function? We'll pay you and give you lunch. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get to go along and, and, and laugh and get paid and a free lunch. And I was a bit broke at the time. And so I did it. And... Uh, I've always been a bit of a self-improvement sort of junkie. So I started to do them and I started to talk about what makes people happy. And I found that people were pretty interested in that topic. And then I started to talk about uh, resilience. And then I started to talk about um, emotional agility, emotional intelligence. And then I got picked up by Melbourne Business School. So I kind of went from nothing to the number one provider of executive education in the Asia Pacific, as we proudly said. Um, and that's kind of how I've ended up in the sort of leadership space. But it was really from, uh, you know, uh, wanting to get a date and uh, facilitating a room for people and everyone having a good time. I love that. It's 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 you know they can say there's nothing there's no such thing as coincidences. There's uh, there's a preordained plan for everything. But uh, so what a, what a great story to have, of how it how it began. So the single status has changed, I gather, uh, since that since those days. Well, what I always say is it uh, doesn't matter. I'm just not as happy about it. No, it, is, it has changed. But, yeah, so I will say, uh, so we want to know if I got a date. I said, no, I didn't, but I wasn't, you know, it didn't matter. So you were happy either way, right? Yeah, happier. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I love the, I mean, you know, for myself having worked as a, uh, you know, in the media for for a lot of years before I got into what I'm doing, and that would have been a fascinating time um, going into Vietnam and and seeing the people that were there. But I and, and I and I wonder as well where how on the happiness scale how they rated in that at that time because it would have been, you know, there would have been a, a huge sense of relief with 
you know, things opening up and changing in the country. Then, was there? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I always I always thought that um, I'll just be careful with my comments. Let me just relate the story perhaps. Uh, and so when we went, we had to have it, we had a government minder that sort of drove us from the airport to the hotel and and we went to uh, the middle of Danang, and it was where the big battles, where the um, the you know when the when the Vietnamese almost sort of took took back the country. I think it was in '68. Um, forget what it's called. Uh, what's the years thing called in Vietnam? Tet, the Tet Offensive, right? Danang, yep. yeah. So the Tet Offensive started there. Anyway, uh, and one day we escaped the minder. We went to Hawaii. We had a look. And we decided not to catch a train back. We decided to catch this back of a truck. So we jumped on the back of this truck and the truck pulled up at a service station to fill up. The driver got out and filled up and then he gave some money. into. And, and the woman who served him looked like a grandmother. She looked like she was 78 or 80 and she had the, the hat on and old clothes. Uh, and he jumped back into the bus really quickly into the truck after he'd given her the money. And quick as a flash, she pulled this knife out of her sleeve, which was about 10 inches long. And, and then he sort of laughed and came and gave her the rest of the money. And um, so that was my kind of, they were certainly uh, very sharp and onto what, what happened. Uh, so, uh, look, but, you know, again, I found people in the countryside really just very friendly and lovely and some people didn't talk French. Um, but I think really, you know, so my experience of um, some of the Vietnamese migrants when I've come here, you know, they came in 75, tremendously hard workers, uh, mm. tremendously hard workers and totally on the ball. And, uh, you know, the second generation migrants that are, are always so, so focused on. And, and I've got a friend of mine, you know, where her family's come since 75 is, is amazing. So I don't, know, I don't know happy, but certainly ambitious and hardworking. I know we, we talk about... Uh... Uh, no such thing as coincidences, but uh, I didn't obviously know your history of, of uh, having gone into Vietnam before we started this. And to, and this morning, completely randomly, uh, I um, decided uh, I was with my daughter and she's got Google in her room. And um, we've, and I thought just as a, as a joke, I sort of said, hey, Google, completely randomly, play Good Morning Vietnam by Robin Williams. And uh, so, so the, of course, it started with the, and I won't try and do it, the Good Morning Vietnam and, and the bit about, you know, denying me uh, as well. And so it's just, it's so, it's spooky because I, I really have not watched or, or paid attention to Good Morning Vietnam for the longest time. No idea why it popped into my head this morning. Uh, it did play that little 30-second bit, and here we are talking about it. So, um you know, the universe works in strange and, and marvellous ways at times, doesn't it? You're prescient. You saw the future. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, and I wanted to touch on uh, as well innovation. Um, and, and you spoke about it earlier on, the the difference between um, people's perception as a worker and boss's perception uh, in that in that space and having that freedom to try things out, I've, I've, like you, I facilitated a few sessions around uh, around the idea of innovation, particularly in the communications and marketing space. And it uh, it's interesting how many times I've watched uh, bosses shut down mm. what actually are good ideas, and often it's because it's not their idea. 
It's not, a, it, it's as, as an outside, and, and I'm wondering about that with you is, is because I know you sort of joked about the fact that the bosses will say that it's, it, they weren't good ideas. And, um, but the truth is often that if it's not their idea, they f- often they can feel that their ego gets in the way. They'll never admit it, but the ego gets in the way of actually accepting the fact that this could actually be worth pursuing. What's happening often is they're moving, or it could be also that, you know, that's unfeasible, or we tried that, or this is going to be too expensive, our customers won't like it. And they're moving from the ideation stage, idea creation, to the uh, evaluation stage. And so we tend to jump straight into, into that. And so you've actually got to sit for a while with these ideas that might be uncomfortable because uh, the idea that someone's thrown up may not be the right one, but maybe something else will uh and so yeah it is it is ego it's going to be um wasn't my idea it could be getting out of control but there's a big there's a bigger concept which maybe brings us back to the sort of thread of this whole discussion around leadership is as a leader do you see yourself as the um the coach and the grower of your people in which your role is to come along and help them to thrive or do you see yourself uh, as the sort of the maker and the doer and they help you. So if you see yourself as the, the coach, the grower, the, the person who's creating this rich bed for ideas, then it's going to be okay for people to go off because on these tangents, because part of what you're doing is giving them the opportunity to um, be more creative, to be themselves. If you're seeing yourself as I must keep this under control and um uh, I'm, you know, you are in charge of the outcomes, um, but I've also got to decide how how they're achieved. Then it's going to be uncomfortable when people go off um, off the, the thread like that. I did I did a workshop once, and it was an innovation workshop. I had about five or six people, and the EA to the big honcho wanted to come along to it, so that was fine. They came along, uh, and. Uh, the other people are getting into it, did some playful acting around us and, and we relaxed and we started to come up with these ideas. Uh, you know, I used a lot of Edward de Bono techniques around it and uh, they would just, um, you, you, your viewers can't uh, see this, but if you're at home listening, just now screw up your nose like you've got a bad smell, right? Just screw up your nose. Anthony can see what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's all they had to do. Uh, and people started to shut up and clam up and he's he's sort of got oh that's stupid and it just completely um shut the uh the, the thing down and as, as a participant not in that one uh once said to me uh, you might have to cut this word out she said no one wants to be the poo in the pool you know how we all run from yep. from that so no one wants to yep. be the poo in the pool so i'm not going to throw up an idea if you're going to single me out and ridicule my idea Again, mm-hmm. again, we're coming back to concepts of psychological safety and and things like that, aren't we? And it's and there's nothing worse than the the eye roll as well, where you know people oh. are, are, are doing that and thinking, oh, you know, they they they're saying, oh, we're not saying anything, we didn't say anything wrong, but you can see the eyes rolling, and you think, well, they've really shut this down uh, without oh. even saying a word, and and uh, you know, I think having that freedom, and I know certainly as I've done things in in workplaces, is saying going in with an attitude that we're going to adopt one or two ideas unless they're absolutely horrific. We're going to adopt one or two ideas and give them a crack and give them a crack for a concerted period of time because it's also 
you know, if something doesn't deliver results in 24 hours, you don't shut it down. But there's nothing worse than, and again, I've been privy to some of these sessions in the past where you've been in a workplace whereby um, the ideas are shut down before they've even begun and you think, you're sitting there thinking, why am I even here? Uh, it's it's going in with an openness and a sense of, and a, a shared sense of ownership. And that's often difficult to do in a, in a business. Uh, non-for-profits can do it a little bit easier because there's a shared sense of ownership of the organisation. But even then, I've been in environments where CEOs have have shut things down and not realised it. Uh, it's a difficult thing to do and, and credit to you for being able to uh, pull those things off. Um, I wanted to ask you one final question uh, before we have to, unfortunately, end the discussion. Um, what do you see as being the aha moment that people have when they when they can't start coming to work with you and in many respects that's that moment that you would love people to get beforehand so they're lining up to go and say we need to talk to chris mm. so you know uh, the, one of the things that people hate most even more than death everyone is public speaking right so let's move down from people in general to leaders I think the most hated task, and there's some research around this, of a leaders is having hard conversations, having performance conversations. Uh, and um, what people find really difficult is to give accurate and warm feedback that is still strong. So there's a great model in uh, HBR uh, around that leaders should show both warmth and strength, and you need to show the warmth first and the strength afterwards. And you're really not helping anybody by not giving them great feedback, focusing on what they do well most of the time, but also when they get things wrong and, and talking. And there's particular ways you should get the feedback, but that's not the aha moment. So what happens is leaders don't have those conversations. This is particularly the case in hybrid environments and with flex workplaces, so that it's harder to see people. You can't give um, quick feedback the whole way along. So I call these the, the rumble strips. So you can't give little check-ins to make sure people are on course. A rumble strip is that strip you hit on the side of the highway when you're driving, right, and your car starts to veer off. Now, in an office environment, you can just go, oh, hang on, Sarah, you're still working on that. Uh, look, I only meant for that to take half an hour. I can see it's taking longer. Um, you're just probably doing it a bit better than I need you to do it. You, you can't do that because they're, they're working remotely. So you can't do that. So you can't give those little bits of feedback uh, and leaders found it difficult enough to give feedback in the real environment, but in the virtual environment becomes even harder. So they don't do it. Uh, and then the problem gets bounced up to HR. They go, you know, Sam comes along and goes, oh, my team, they don't do this, they don't do that. They, they don't, what did I hear the other day? Um, I can't get my team to come to a meeting and uh, drill down to it a bit. What, why not? And this person, this leader, be trying to get them all along. And she finally got a time on Wednesday at 2.30. And one of the team members said, oh, I'm getting the fridge delivered. Now, back in the day, you would have the fridge delivered in the morning, the afternoon. So she needed to have a hard conversation around, you can have flex work, but when there's a team meeting, you need to come. Um, mm. So it gets bounced up uh, and HR gets uh, then sort of swamped with all of the stuff. And the aha moment is when I teach their people a script to use for the feedback. And it's a script that is non-judgmental, it's clear, it's accurate, it's digestible. And the other part of the script is a lot of training like that says, um, I need to make my leaders more confident around uh, having these hard conversations, to which I say bollocks. Confidence comes after you've done the thing. 
You don't need to be more confident. And if you wait to be more confident, it's going to take a really long time. Here's a script. Whether you're confident, confident or not, just go in, have the conversation, follow the script. And the first time a couple of the leaders that they're managing do this and come back and they've had the challenging conversation, the HR manager is like, ah, now I can get back to doing my real work instead of putting out all these fires. So the aha conversation is when uh, people take on those uh, conversations and have those courageous conversations. I love that. And you've, you've hit on so many uh, different aspects uh, of what I think is a uh, you know common thing these days and the, and the need to have hard conversations, but dealing in remote environments as well as uh, as well as those uh, where they're in person, it's uh, it's a more difficult landscape these days than than what we've had in the past. And uh, and people like you making a huge uh, impact on on changing that and making life easier for for as you say for the HR people, but also for people in general and leaders. Uh, Chris, you've been an amazing guest. I really appreciate uh, the time that you've given well, and take us on quite a journey. You're very welcome, Anthony. I was going to say, uh, if any listeners are out there and they get in touch, I'll, I'll happily share the, the brief script with them and, and they can try it out themselves. So, but, yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Fantastic. And, yes, well, we we do, as with all of our shows, we do have uh, some show notes that will come, particularly on the website, everyone. So if you do, if you are listening to us on the standard platforms, Spotify, Amazon, uh, Apple and uh, and Google, then please also go through and check out the website where we've got dedicated pages on uh, each of our guests and links to how to get in touch with them, including some of the special offers that they bring. So we will be sure to include those details of how to get in contact with Chris there. Thank you so much again, Chris, for being a great guest on the program. And uh, we will look forward, everyone, to having you company on the next episode of BizBytes. BizBytes is brought to you by ComTogether for all your marketing needs so you can build your brand, engage audiences on multiple platforms. Go to comtogether.com.au, follow the links to book an appointment for a free consultation.